0: If you haven't been a college athlete, you cannot understand the kind of pressure that you're under. It's different. There's other things that have other pressures, but it's a unique kind of pressure. So who are you going to believe? Can me, who's been through the program, says, this is the best thing to help me? Or are you going to believe me with the PhD and say, you should do these things because I know.
1: Welcome to another edition of the CUSP Show, the Columbia University sports podcast, where we talk about the business of sports, media, disruption, Interaction, topical subjects for sure, usually, hopefully. I'm Joe Favorito here at the end of September with my co host Tom Richardson. Tom, another topic that we haven't talked about really before, we're going to talk about today in a really busy month.
2: Yeah, oh my God, busy is an understatement. This is yeah. such an exciting time. I know we've mentioned this in, in uh, uh, previous weeks on this, but it's turning out that this whole MLB story with Aaron Judge, with the record, I mean, we're recording this. Was it mm-hmm. last night, Joe, or two nights ago? Two, night, two nights ago. So he, two he's, ago, yeah.
1: We can congr- We can say congratulations, to Aaron Judge, because by the time people listen to this, he will have broken the record
2: already. Well, we so, we uh, hope. I mean, there's really only a, a, a few number of games left, but um, there's just such great baseball excitement in New York, which is unusual. Um, I mean, everybody's talking about baseball, which is which yep. is fantastic to see for a change. But it feels like there's it's going to be an epic postseason, obviously epic end of the season. This Mets series this weekend, again, we'll know the results by the time this pod is released. But the Mets are playing for the uh, division and uh, very exciting football, football, football. The ratings are crazy. Uh, Still good. Um, There was that issue of the concussion last night which was, which was really unfortunate. Uh, I only caught the tail end of that. I don't know if you were watching live when it actually yeah. happened with Tua, but that was really disturbing. And of course there was an outcry on Twitter, uh, within seconds because he allegedly had a, a if, if not a, a real concussion this past Sunday, he definitely mm-hmm. was hurt last Sunday. And, uh, this one last night was quite serious. It, it, it was mm-hmm. a pretty jarring image to see. And Amazon was immediately attacked for doing too many replays as every network is when there's a really horrific injury. Uh, but then again, I was watching ESPN this morning and guess what? They were freely showing the replay too. So it's kind of a tough issue, but anyway, um, leaving that unfortunate thing to the side, it's, uh, it's an exciting time in the biz. Speaking
1: of tough issues. Um, and by the way, so we're sitting here, the NBA is playing in Japan this weekend Ah, uh, the NHL is getting ready to really kick in the rest of their preseason. NWSL finals playoffs start in a couple of weeks. MLS Cup starts in a couple of weeks. Obviously, World Cup in November, so no shortage of stuff. Including, you know, Roger Federer retiring last week, so uh, lots and lots of stuff. But um, today we're going to talk about uh, maybe a little bit of a heavier subject, but something that that I think people need to hear of and when you look at issues in sports, one of the biggest things is people who provide hope or show a way to solve a problem or at least get us to a solution. So uh, we're, especially in the college sports space, which we talk about every once in a while, but between NIL, the pressures on athletes, the pressures on just being in college post pandemic uh, Tom, as you and I know being around campus have really created a little bit of a firestorm in, a lot of times when firestorms like this are created and it's not exactly my issue, it's a young person's issue sometimes, we either try to sweep it under the rug or say, oh, they're young, they'll get over it. However, if you look across the college student athlete space, I believe, unfortunately, it's at least in the last nine months, somewhere like 30 or 35 student athletes of all levels, Division three to Division one, have taken their own lives. And the pressure that is on student athletes um, to lead various lives, because they have to, including now with the pressure of NIL, um, is somewhat being unaddressed on a wide scale, but there are now organizations that are trying to do something about it and address it and figure out how you can help, if not solve the problem, create opportunities so that the pressure is taken off and A lot of things can be talked about that may just be swept under the rug, like we've seen on the professional athlete side for the last couple of years, especially ever since Kevin Love did his famous piece in in, uh, the Players' Tribune and some of the other things that have come up. But our guest today is Dr. Patricia Delden, um, who is at the University of Michigan, has spent her entire career on the psychology side has done a lot of stuff around young people and is now part of a platform called Moodlifters, which is trying to desperately address and is starting to address the opportunities around young people, um, mental health and wellness, and really kind of taking the stress off it. So Patty, as we're going to call you, uh, Dr. Delden, thank you very much for joining us on the
2: Cusp Show today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Cool. Um, I'll kick it off Joe with a question that um, well, I think allow Patty maybe to introduce herself a little bit. One of the things I noticed in doing the research Patty was the um in one of your videos there was there was a chart some research you had shared about the incidence of anxiety and depression among different age groups. And it, and it was particularly bad with younger people. Interestingly, 60 plus is the lowest uh percentage uh incidence Joe, which I which I found quite fascinating, mm-hmm. but but the, but it was really alarming to see the growth of Uh, issues with, let's call Gen Z or younger millennials. Um, It sounds like with your academic experience, your, your background, which is, which is quite extensive, your work in this particular area with depression, suicide, et cetera, that you are one of the biggest um, brains out there on this topic. And it's really interesting that you took your academic experience and actually Created, I guess you would we would call it a business mood, mood lifters. Um, so talk about that because obviously there had to be an impetus to go beyond academia into into the broader market.
0: Sure. Um, well, it was really built out of frustration, right? So I have been fortunate to be at the very best places um, hired, um, and I do feel fortunate because it's a, a lot of luck to be in these amazing places. Um, but what I kept seeing over and over again is that we weren't having a big impact, a positive impact overall. Now, for individual cases, we've had a lot of positive outcomes, individual therapists doing a lot of real good with individual, with individual patients. But overall in the field, what we've been seeing is increases in depression, increases in anxiety, a 40% increase in suicide since the year 2000. I
2: mean, with the population at large, you're saying the population yeah, yeah.
0: at large right. and some populations like younger girls, it's a 200% increase. So the um, so although I'm trained as a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist, um, I hadn't been trained in intervention. Um, I decided I, I had to do something about it. Um, and that's when I developed my company. It was really out of frustration.
2: All right. So we'll talk. So so turn. How do you turn the idea into the business?
0: Well, <clears throat> um, I'm the deputy director of the University of Michigan Depression Center, and what my one of my jobs at the time when I came up with the idea of Moodlifters was to help bring teams of researchers together across the university around bipolar and depression, and i had been reading a lot of books about innovation, and at the same time, we were launching the National Network of Depression Center, Dr. John Graydon's um, brainchild, where we were trying to bring other institutions into the fold in terms of um, having, also having a depression center. Now, why that's important is things like cancer and cardiovascular disease have made these dramatic improvements in part because there's the national cancer and cardiovascular disease networks. So they have a lot of resources so they can have much larger studies and then come together with results and then make improvements in treatment rapidly. So he thought we should have all these centers. But it was in a talk that he gave where he showed the statistics of people getting worse um, in terms of depression while cardiovascular disease and cancer were going down. So it really bothered me. This has always bothered me. I went into the field for a singular reason and that is to help people. And I thought I could do it best by helping people in neuroscience research. But seeing those data told me that nothing that I had done in my whole career at Harvard, at Michigan, at NIH had helped anybody as a whole or hasn't helped society as a whole. So I was just bothering me, it was really bothering me. Around the same time, um, I happened to be also having something else bugging me. I'd gained a lot of weight from the birth of my second child, hadn't been able to lose it. And so my colleagues sort of dragged me kicking and screaming, I didn't wanna go, because of stigma, I can do it on my own. I was a college athlete, this shouldn't be a problem for me. Um, I could lose weight and he took me to Weight Watchers and sure enough, I lost 35 pounds. He told me it was psychologically sophisticated, it was. And what, after losing this weight, I turned to him and I said, Chris, why don't we have something like this for mental health? Low cost, highly effective in a destigmatized environment that we could offer to millions of people, like Weight Watchers does. And he basically laughed and said, You can't do that. Well, when you've been a college athlete, the best thing that could happen is for you to be told that you can't do something <laughs> exactly. nothing like right. getting, my, getting my competition up. And so that's essentially what I did with smart undergraduates like me, who's on the call, um, as well as smart graduate students, much smarter than me. We created this program. That's essentially the Weight Watchers for Mental Health because we want to wow. really create a highly effective, low cost evidence-based treatment.
1: Cool. Hey, um, Patty, you kind of buried the lead there. Talk about your background and the experiences that you had as a student-athlete. And I'd be curious, now looking back and seeing kind of this plague of of what's going on with student-athletes and the pressure that's going on, how your your experience could relate to student-athletes of today and how Moodlifters is working with that.
0: Yeah, so I grew up in a family that didn't go to college generally and was discouraged. Uh, Actually, my dad had a scholarship for football to Michigan or Michigan State or something, wasn't allowed to go because hmm. um, my family didn't value education. My brother then had a scholarship to, for soccer, wasn't able to go. Had to work in the small family business. So I went to college uh, for a singular reason. I didn't think I'd actually graduate. I just wanted to keep running. I love to run. I was so naive. I didn't even know that it wasn't like high school. You can go to the team and just try out. <laughs> you know, I just walked out there and I said, "Hey, you know, I run. Can I be on your team?" And he's like, "Well, what's your time? So He's like, "Oh, that's pretty good, actually. Um, so maybe you can join the team." So I did as a walk-on. Um, again, still not realizing that, that didn't happen until way later. Um, so I wanted to be either a psychologist or nutrition to help athletes. That's what I want to do. Again, I thought that would be done in four years. I didn't know. I've never heard of grad school. Um, and never, but I knew I wanted to help people, whether med school or grad school, or or, uh, sorry, medical, be a medical doctor or psychologist. So I really got the bug. I had a great professor in undergrad, I got the bug, the research bug. And for me, I thought research would be the way to help all people for all time. I thought that would be done at four years. Um, I didn't know of grad school. And so once I um, learned about grad school, I um, decided that I had to really buckle down and study Um, to get into into grad school and at the same time actually i was playing football intramurally um, and speak of tragic accidents i had a acl that was torn in my freshman year which ended my track career Hmm. so um, i can relate uh camille and i talk about how injuries can really lead to depression and anxiety um in my case it didn't um but you could see, cause I was in college and I saw this, like oh these amazing opportunities there. So it really gave me an opportunity to, to bear down and focus. And honestly, what it, the, what it told me is when I stopped running, my GPA went up a lot. Hmm. The fact of the matter is, is that the amount of time that these student athletes have to spend is amazing. And I'm just in awe of every single one of them because the schedules are unbelievable. So I had to run, we were running about 15, um, I think we were averaging 12 miles a day to, to go to two practices, which takes a lot of time. So to be able to do that, um, plus be able to run, um, to, to do well in school and do everything else that you need to do, which I was paying for my in college, um, that's a lot of work. So these students are under tremendous amount of stress. So it's not surprising to me that the rates of depression in general are through the roof. Um, I think about, um, I mean, you know, on average 85% of people will have depression or anxiety or some form of mental illness throughout their life. Most of them start around the late teens, early twenties. So you're putting these kids who are young adults, sorry, these young adults in a very stressful environment in college in general, and then add this pressure to succeed in their sport. They've been the best in their state, right? So they have to continue. Now they're around people who are as good as them. So there's a lot of stress both academically because they were the smartest kid in the class and they're the best student. So you put them, the competitive ones like me, um, in that environment, it's extremely stressful. And then they also, there's a lot of stigma because they don't want anyone to see them struggling because they could lose their place on their team. So the combination is is really horrendous. For and, it, and I,
2: I know you've done special programs for different populations, but let's spend a couple more minutes on, on the, the sports psychology because- I'm wondering if there's a correlation between what's happening with, uh, let's say college level sports, which is, as you said, quite competitive and stressful and other environments where it's really high performance oriented and, and yeah. mili- military things like that, where you, you, you music, music yeah. you, you kind of yeah. have to be on, on your game, like 24 seven to, to be competitively successful. Um, I think about that a lot when I think about people in the military, when, when I have met people and uh, first responders and things like that. You, you can't really afford downtime because there's this expectation you're always going to perform at the highest possible level. That is just the expectation. Is it particularly bad? Has your research shown that it's particularly bad in what I call these high performance environments?
0: Um, I don't... I. It's, it's, it's interesting because often the folks who are in those are also extremely mentally healthy and resilient to begin with. You don't get to be uh, a chemise level of um, athlete without being quite resilient. So there's a combination of things that actually happen. What we know from the literature is for the college athletes, the rates of depression and anxiety are about the same. Um, but again, but I will tell you stress is bad, right? No. Stress is bad for your mental health. We, want, we all need a little bit of stress. Um, it keeps us interested and motivated and things like that. So it's like a U-shaped function. You don't want too little stress and you don't want too much stress. So it really, so the, these college athletes, it depends, um, or these other performers, are they feeling like they're able to cope with the level of stress that they are? Do they have a supportive coach? Do they have a supportive um, environment? Do they have team players that are trying to help them? Or are they competing with them? So it really depends on a bunch of factors, both what they bring genetically, but what the environment also holds. And I think the environment, like how coaches view mental illness, how they view the, um, the practice, whether they're healthy, they're helping promote healthy behaviors, or if it's just cutthroat. So it really depends on the environment, um, whether or not it pushes people over. Their genetics plus the stress is what causes illnesses.
1: Um, Patty, walk us through mood lifters. Tell us about the business, how people get involved. Uh, Obviously you can't go into specifics, but some of the kind of holistic things that you've seen from when you started it to where it is today and where you want it to go.
0: Right. So what I did is I took what I thought were the best parts of Weight Watchers that helped me the most. And I put them into a mental health context because again, they're always Weight Watchers is an excellent program for weight loss. Number one program in the world, often for health as well as weight loss. So it was a great role model and they built that model over 50 years. So essentially what I did is I took the Weight Watchers model at least pieces of that and I melded it with the very best clinical science that's out there. But there's some things about who I am about what I wanted it to have. One of which is I wanted it to be holistic in the sense of um, you know, if some of these um, football players that we talked about get a head injury, they're more likely to get depression and anxiety, right? If it's hit in a certain place. So there could be biological components and changes in the brain. Then there are other things like breakups or terrible coaches or um, non-supportive athletes that might really be playing a role. So we know that there's a bio component, a psychological component and a social component to mental illness. Unfortunately, most treatments only deal with one of those. So you go to a doctor, you get meds for the bio. You go to a therapist who's a cognitive behavioral, you talk about thoughts. So I thought, well, yeah, we need all those things and there's no treatment out there um, that does it. So what we did is we took that Weight Watchers program and picked 15 topics that I thought were essential for mental wellness that fit in those five different areas. So it's a 15 week program and three weeks on each of those five topics, biology, thoughts, emotions, behaviors, and relationships. So each week we teach people a strategy that's based in science, say exercise, which isn't an issue for athletes so much, um, but people who aren't athletes uh, might not be doing it. Um, Another thing we really emphasize with the college students in particular is sleep. Sleep is really essential for mental wellness, no matter what problems that you're having, or even just to thrive or to perform. So we teach people how to sleep better. And so each week we teach them a new strategy that's been shown in science to actually help most people feel better. And then we tell them to go off and practice this. And these college athletes actually do the best out of any group that we've tested. They get about 75% reduction in their depression and anxiety, which is remarkable because we wanted the minimally uh, clinically significant difference is 25%. And honestly, I thought with a program taught by peers, for $15 a meeting, I would have been hoping for 10% reduction, even keeping people stable. But the fact of the matter is mood lifters reduces this depression, anxiety by 75%. In these populations, why? Because they know, like, if you wanna go run a marathon, Joe, you're not gonna just go out and do 26 miles today. You know that you have to build up and practice, right? So athletes were able to translate their skills in physical training to their mental health training. So it's really pretty impressive that um, they were able to do that. And they they led by peers, so.
1: Well, actually, that's what I wanted to, can you talk a little bit about that? And and I know uh, Camille is listening in on the call and she was a a student athlete at Michigan, but how important is that? Because the one thing that that when I've talked to people and we had uh, Aaron Taylor on over the summer to talk about his experiences and he's big on mental health and trying to help, really elite athletes he played at Notre Dame and then in the NFL but um how important is it to have someone who looks like you is the same age going through the same thing talking versus frankly you me or Tom talking to them what's the difference and you obviously saw a big impact with that
0: yeah um well if just I'll use my experience with Weight Watchers, if some skinny registered dietitian told me that I needed to change how I lived my life, <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, I know. And let me guess I have to eat less and move more. Mm, it doesn't take a PhD to know that. Right. <sighs> um, but what I had was a real estate agent who had been told by her parents, she'd never lose weight. And she believed wow. them until the fifth time she tried when she did Weight Watchers and she lost 175 pounds. That was motivating to me. So what I needed there wasn't some knowledge, right? I have the knowledge, it's actually doing it. So um, with college athletes, if you haven't been a college athlete, you cannot understand the kind of pressure that you're under. It's different, there's other things that have other pressures, but it's a unique kind of pressure. So who are you gonna believe? Can me who's been through the program says this is the best thing that helped me? Or are you gonna believe me with the PhD and say you should do these things because I know and I happen to be a college athlete, so I have a little bit more street cred there, but for the most part, not. And here's another example with mood lifters. We offered a low-income, mainly minority community outside of Ann Arbor. And should an upper-middle-class white person go tell poor Black people, Latina people, how to live their life? I find that morally re- reprehensible. My family's from the UP of Michigan, which is a rural poor area. Having someone from Ypsilanti go up there and tell my family how to live, they would have no idea what the stresses are up there. So we really think that we can offer a much more destigmatized, relatable environment. Um, we also look for people, it's not just any athlete could do this or any um, poor rural person could do this. We look for particular characteristics that have been shown in the literature to be effective. And that is that they're warm, genuine, kind, and they don't stigmatize mental health and they're respectful. We don't look for college degrees. So when we first start testing this, We tested peers versus professionals, okay? I literally have been a professor at Harvard and Michigan, and I've been training students to be therapists for 30 years. And in this study, we looked at a housewife, an engineer, and a college undergrad, and me and two senior grad students, and compared our efficacy in this program. And guess what? They were equally effective, which is very humbling for me, but also made the model work. So now we can say, okay, not only we're not going to look for the education degrees, we're going to look for the good people, the kind people, the empaths, wow. and they're going to be equally effective. And that's what we've shown time and time again. So the data I told you um, was from peer-led groups. Wow. So,
2: Patty, can, can we talk a little bit about some of the societal factors going beyond the stresses with, let's say, student athletes about the actual performance and talk about the, the, the impact of um, – social media, let's say, this this ubiquitous force that is kind of a counterforce to the, to the good stuff. We know it's there, and there's been a lot of research done on the effects of social media, particularly with teenage girls. It's been written about quite a bit. Really interesting to think about that because it really hasn't changed that much. In, in many ways, it's gotten worse, uh, I would say. At the same time, there's been a rash of capital put into the tech market for ubiquitous wellness applications like headspace and calm. So the irony, I was just thinking about this as we were talking, the irony is like on our mobile phones, whether you're 20 years old or 60 years old, you can have the headspace app right next to TikTok, which (laughs) (laughs) kind of is a crazy thought. Like, Mm -hmm. so talk about, I'm sure, I'm sure that must come up a lot in your, it has come up in your research and it must be addressed in, in some of the mood lifters discussions.
0: Right, well, one of the things to think about um, recently, I think it was in Scientific American or some popular science or some um, um, program or some magazine where they basically called apps the wild, wild west of mental health care. So what, it doesn't matter the treatment, I don't care if it's in person or apps or whatever, you need to make sure that who's ever providing you care is following the latest and the science-based care. And unfortunately the vast majority by far of these apps are not evidence-based. We don't know if they're helping or hurting. Now you might say, well, at least it's something, right? Well, I don't actually agree with that because let's say you think it's gonna work, Joe. You think it's gonna work, Tom. So you're going, I'm gonna do the app. I'm gonna get my athletes to do the app. I'm gonna do the athletes, give them something, go talk about their problems, do a support group. Well, what aren't you doing then? You're not doing a treatment that you know works. So in a sense, you give false hope, and you're taking resources away from things that work. So apps, if they have evidence base, and there are a couple that do, are great. But you know what? I don't think we'll ever replace real people. I hope so what, not. Yeah, so what, um, it could help and support them, and I support really good evidence-based ones. I think everything we can do is good if it's got evidence behind it and we know it works and it's not hurting people, then do it. Yes, I'm all for apps. Um, <laughs> but what, what do people say about mood lifters? So first they're afraid to come because there's gonna be other people there that are gonna judge them. Once we get them in the door, after the, about the third meeting, it starts what we call gelling. And when we ask him at the end, what's important? It's the other people and the leaders. That's the number one thing, one and two things that they always say. Well, give me a, let me give an example of another group that we run that's unique. So my neighbor's job, he's a physician, is to help children die. He's a palliative care doctor for children. So he's dealing with parents who are under tremendous amount of stress and they're trying to make decisions about whether to pull the plug on their child. Now I worked with him in my neuroscience research on that problem, how to make help parents make better decisions. They're hopefully only have to make this decision once in their life, they're not experts, right? So they're under tremendous amount of stress. So he and I were walking our dogs and next to each other. This is how research happens sometimes. And he's like, you know, Pat, I just got about $30,000 from a donor. And I can't use my typical staff with how it's stipulated. You know that mood lifters thing you do? Sort of hap- like what happened with the athlete's brain health. He's like, do you think we can modify this for parents whose children are dying? And I'm like, I would love to. Because I had already interviewed 20 or 30 of them for this other study. Because I'm a clinical psychologist. So we gave it to them. What they said was that it was game changing for them because they didn't know anyone else whose child was dying. They tried to go to therapy and, and therapists cannot wrap their brains around it. Just like therapists who are not student athletes can understand what can and all these other student athletes go through, what it means to them when they get injured. So what I had this woman who was like about 10 or 12 years out from her child being very ill. I'm sorry, who was still ill, but from the crisis time. And she had been, she had started support groups. She's been in therapy. She tried everything. Um, And she came to mood lifters and she said, oh my God, it's like the best of both worlds. You get the social support from both the leaders who have a child who's been very sick and uh, parents whose children are dying right now. And you feel, don't feel so alone. You get, finally there's, I have my people. And then yeah. they, she says, but it's not like a support group because support groups without evidence basis could actually, and she said this, they devolved. We started getting competitive, whose kid was the sickest. We complained about our doctors, but we didn't actually solve our problems. Right. And so what Moodlifters does for student athletes, for parents, for undergraduates or whomever, or general adult population, is it gives you the people <laughs> that can support you just like my Weight Watchers leader did me. She don't, I don't think she realizes how much she impacted my life. And then the other members who I was struggling with and would give me ideas of how they succeeded or we would cheer them on when they lost five pounds. So here, when they come, people come to mood lifters group, she said mood lifters gives you the social support, but real strategies to solve your problems. So that was the goal, right? Because if I went to Weight Watchers and just talked about my weight and believe me, I tried that for 30 years, it doesn't work too well. As a matter of fact, I'd be hungry afterwards, I'd go out and have pizza, right? But what you had to do is follow the program and actually do stuff. So I don't believe in just going and talking about your problems. The literature doesn't support it. What you have to do is learn the skills in an environment that you feel safe, go out and practice these new skills, and then you'll make improvements. But it's not easy, right? Just like tr- training for a marathon not easy. Going from d- deeply depressed where you're not getting out of bed to thriving will take a lot of work. And we help people to do that. And athletes know it, right? They know that they can start out you not know, in shape and get to a healthy place. And that's what we do for mental health.
2: So quick follow up. I, I do want to get your thoughts on the effects of social media, um, but also relate it back to the mood lifters approach, which which sounds incredibly smart and sensible to me. Is, is an example? Of this? So let's say you have, uh, th- there's a patient who has indicated that they feel particularly stressed out or anxious when they're in and around social media, which apparently is, is true true with quite a number of people is the idea that let's say the teacher, or do you call them teachers or Leaders. um, leaders? The leader may say, get off of social media, you know, delete your, delete your accounts and stop doing it. Or is it, Hey, what's worked for me is that when I when I limited my screen time or I only concentrated on more positive stuff in my feed or whatever, it actually helped. I, I suspect it's the latter, not the former.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. you don't know, we encourage nobody to give advice because honestly, um, like I said, if some registered dietitian would tell me to eat less and move more, how much would that work? <laughs> right. I just say advice right. is worth the paper it's written on, right? Yeah. Um, so no, instead we think about what about it's helpful? What about it's harmful? What's your personal goal around that? We do. We would say, we do actually have a social media. So we teach teens and social media is in there. And we talk about the literature. We, we, we treat people like adults and like r- rational people. People do things for a reason. People are on social media because they're lonely or because it's fun, but for a reason, right? And we just like substances like alcohol and drugs. We, we don't have a judgment about it. You know, you drink, it makes you feel better for in the short term, but how does it work for you in the long term? So how does social media help you? Why are you doing it? What are you getting out of it? I love Facebook personally, because I take it for what it is. I get to connect with people from all parts of my life, but it, but I don't have, you know, but it doesn't seem to have a problem for me. I'd not, I'm, I not i am i do not spend hours on it. So it really comes to, I don't have a judgment about anything people do. Is it working for them? That's my question. And so we don't give advice.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I want to take the advice side on the other side, because I, and this is, I know, uh, it's probably going to be my last question to, before we get to the final ones. And I know Tom will have another one, but um, the other side of it is, so, is the the inertia that I've seen from college administrators, either trying to sweep this under the rug We're hoping that it doesn't happen on their campus. And we're doing this on Friday, September 30th. And I literally read the story this morning about um, the lacrosse player at Binghamton who uh, took his own life and now Binghamton Athletics, number one, has finally acknowledged it other than saying, you know, we're all sorry. Um, And now they're trying to slowly build something out, but it took seven months to get to that point. How have, or have you seen coaches, trainers, maybe even parents?
2: Athletic directors, yeah.
1: Athletic directors embrace this or is that still way too slow? How is the other side of it saying you young person should go do this or are they still saying, ah, oh, don't tell me what you're doing, you know, just go do what it is you need help help with?
0: Well, I think that in general, my experience in universities is they're very concerned about this. There's a problem though that universities face um, as well as everyone faces. They're what I call the four A's. So if we were to treat every undergrad that has depression, which would be 25% of them, at some point in their life will have depression. 25% of University of Michigan undergrads come in on psych meds. So let's do 25% of the population of 50,000 students. What is that? Uh, 15,000 students and treat them for 15 sessions in individual therapy for $250 a session. Now, how many therapists do we need? How much would that cost? Well, I'll tell you what, the biggest complaint I get at the University of Michigan Depression Center is people have, we have wait lists that are off the chart. So there's a problem with availability, there's a problem with affordability, there's a problem with accessibility and acceptability. So affordability I just explained, if you saw me individually I would charge you $250 so I will not even need to take insurance anymore because my wait list would be three months without even taking insurance. Now. Um, So that means you can't get in because I have a three-month wait list, right? So even if you had the money, I'm not going to take you for a while. We have six-month wait lists at the depression center at times in psychiatry. We have thousands of people on the wait list. Then the third thing is, um, so it's not acceptable, affordable, and available, but also 70% of people don't want to come. So even if you throw traditional therapy, people don't want to go because they want to do it on their own. That's the number one reason. So 70% of people who need care who don't get it don't get it because of stigma. So universities are in a huge bind as well as everybody. It's a huge problem. That's why I created Moodlifters. actually was I want an affordable, available, acceptable, and accessible program. It's $15 a meeting and that's why you need peers because it takes years to train people like me. So even if we put billions of dollars in now, It would take us seven years before we had a whole army of people. So it's complicated too, because there's all kinds of, you know, this organization does a little bit, this organization does other things, sort of to take a comprehensive approach is hard. So what we've done here at Moodlifters is we have um, an undergrad and a grad program, and each of those have to be tested, right, to make sure they actually work. Then we have an adult program for the faculty and staff. And we have a senior citizen program for emeritus. And then we have athlete program. Most people aren't even thinking like that. I think we're one of the only programs that actually have tested exclusively and built for students. So it's really complex. I mean, just throwing more money. They keep trying to do that University of Michigan. They're great. They care about it a lot, but you can't hire your way out of this problem. You really need an, a different kind of solution. And so people are actually trained to apps and like, don't just go to apps because apps people are on, on average for six weeks and we don't know if they work. So really <laughs> it takes a comprehensive will and approach. So if I were like an athletic director, what I would do, honestly, I'm not just saying this will sound self-serving is I would, instead of one-offs, like, and I'd love to hear Camille's experience about being a mood as an athlete. But what I'd love to do is have team by team offering a mood lifter so everyone comes and the coaches go for themselves and not just send other people you know what those parents pointing to their kids they should be going first yeah that they they show they live the you know and athletic directors should be going to mood lifters or therapy and announcing it because they're under stress too so really changing the culture like get a physical every year get them on a health check Go to mood lifters, go six times. We have people go six times. They want to just keep it in their life because it's so cheap and affordable and available. Mm-hmm. So have this be, mental health be part of what you do, just like you do health, physical. So
2: cool. Patty, scaling the business seems like it's critical to to accomplish your ultimate goal of, of having this Weight Watchers and mental health. I believe Weight Watchers is a for-profit business. Are you for-profit? Can you talk a little bit about your the business side of it?
0: Sure. Um, Yes. So when I was in Weight Watchers, I thought um, I thought I'm going to try to do this business model as well as because honestly, I've been asking donors for money for years, writing grants for years. And you're sort of constrained. So I thought I want to do that. I want to try to do what they they treat millions of people every week. So I I did a for profit business. I have not made a cent. That's not why, as you can tell, it's not why I'm doing it. It really is to try to do it differently and to use the market. So I am a for profit company. And that's how I'm hoping to be able to scale to millions of people like they have. They're a great company.
2: Yeah. And, and to do that, obviously, you need, you need resources. How many employees do you have? How are you going to build up you know, to acquire customers, uh-huh. as they say? Because you, know, <laughs> you do have to face the reality as a business to scale. Uh, more people, more effort, more marketing, more promotion, et cetera.
0: Well, what's great about like a college level scaling. Um, so right, like right now, here's an example. There's, th- that is what keeps me up most nights because now I know I have a product that works. And if I could get it to all of the NCAA athletes, for example, just that population, it would change the course of everything, right, for yeah. them. Right. And I know, and also I forgot to mention, when we did it in graduate students, we did it at the beginning to the end of this semester, those people who are moderate to no symptoms when they joined mood lifters, they got about 10% better, which doesn't sound like too much until you know that those that didn't got 30% worse. So we're still 40% of wow. We seem to have some preventive ability. Can't promise that. We don't know mm-hmm. enough about the science yet, but it was a nice hint that we might be able to prevent some of these problems. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so it really depends on the scaling model, but really I'm not, a, I'm a neuroscientist. I used to look under the, you know, the, the, the hood here, you know, that's how I thought. And so I have a lot of business consultants who are p- as passionate about mental health as I am, giving me advice, um, donations always help, um, being hired by a large, co- or, so like one of the things that I worked with, what was it called, the hidden opponent? The hidden opponent. And we had been talking about having two athletes at each university um, train and they could bring mood lifters back to their programs. So, um, but again, they wanted a nonprofit. They didn't want us to charge, um, but as a for-profit company, it makes it difficult for us to do those kinds of things. So in any event, we're trying to scale through like places like the YMCAs, of America, we're in in conversation with about 25 of them, where they would have their diabetes prevention program leaders, their yoga instructors, or so forth, be mood lifters leaders. Um, And we're talking to them. We've already been working with the Ann Arbor YMCA for years. So that would be a scaling model. We also um, are talking to other organizations that already have leaders in place that we might be able to take advantage of.
2: Uh, do you have, just out of curiosity, do you have venture capital? I mean, have you tried to raise money for it to to, to um, accelerate the, the growth?
0: Um, we would love venture capital. We're just starting to look right now. Because yeah. again, what I did is unusual. Um, well, it's an unusual thing. It'd have to be a special venture capitalist because my goal is to help people for the lowest cost possible but while being a for-profit company. Right. So it'd have to be the right person who really wants to pursue this as a, and also I think though, honestly, I know that again, sounds self-serving, but if Weight Watchers can tr- make billions of dollars, why can't we, why can't well, we have- Well, that's
2: what, that's what I'm thinking. Cause if cause it, it sounds like this is so, uh, there's such a need. I mean, ultimately entrepreneurs have to decide there's a problem or need in the market and you have the vision and, and the wherewithal to, to go fix it, which you are. And that's an amazing thing. And I'm, I'm even thinking, I just checked my app, my, my phone quickly. Well, I, I, I never occurred to me, there's a Weight Watchers app, so maybe right. a year from now, two years from now, there's a mood lifters app, and all well, the young people who live on apps, well, that's maybe a way you can, you know, to help scale it. Well, right that's
0: the Weight Watchers. app <laughs> yeah, right next to TikTok. <laughs> so we have, well, we have an app actually that Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan helped us to build, but it's a okay, cool. It's a companion; it's not a standalone. Because I mm-hmm. think it always will be. What's special about Moodlifters is it's people. Pe- other mm-hmm. people matter. As a person who dragged me to Weight Watcher said, is known for saying his most famous quote before he died was, other people matter, period. And so I think mm-hmm. what an app will never give you, no matter how AI it is, will be other people matter. Can I ask Camille to talk about her experience? Well,
1: a- actually, you just stole my thunder because I was going to say our, our last question, um, talking about other people. So Kimi Davre is a former, former Michigan athlete, correct? Cross-country runner, yeah. who is really, um, I hate to say the poster child, but one of the, the best examples of what peer-to-peer can do. So Kimi, can you, you've been listening to the conversation, obviously you work with Patty. Um, why don't you just give us your two or three minute POV on how much you wanna talk about what it's done for you, but also um, for, we have student athletes who listen to this, you know, what, what it can do for them. I think that would be really valuable.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I'd be happy to. Um, I'm really grateful that I found mood lifters. Um, I was a cross country and track athlete at the university of Michigan, um, was an all American in 2018 and also part of a big 10, um, winning cross country team. So I had some success, um, on the track and, um, I ended up finding mood lifters my junior year in college. I had gotten a pretty serious stress fracture in my hip and was unable to compete, um, was isolated from teammates, kind of dealing with a loss of identity since I put so much into my sport and now was unable to run, period, um, and also was dealing with chronic pain. So it was kind of the like a dark night of the soul for me. (laughs) And when I got a Um, email from the athletic department at the University of Michigan. They were talking about mood lifters and a study for student athletes. And I became really curious. I reached out to Patty and decided, you know what, I should just sign up for the program and kind of see how this thing goes and what it's about. And I'm really happy that I did. Um, You know, I was skeptical at first, um, wasn't really sure what to expect. And like Patty mentioned, there is a big stigma around mental health and it was also something that kind of contributed to my injury in the first place because I was a little bit, um, you know, nervous to advocate for myself, and I think a lot of athletes experience that when they're going through injury and they're trying to, you know, tough through difficult circumstances. And I went through the program, learned amazing clinical skills that a lot of people will never get to learn in their whole life, and then also was really inspired by the peer leaders who provided a really. Um, understanding an acceptable environment for me to thrive in and at the end of it I just decided that you know I really wanted to give back in the way um, that mood, lif- mood lifters had benefited me and try to help other people that were struggling and so I continue to work with program today as a peer leader.
1: Great and uh, Patty last question for you uh, at least for me how many how many peer leaders do you have now and how has it grown over the last, you know, let's say year or so, especially given everything that's happened with COVID?
0: Yeah, well, COVID actually happened at an inconvenient time for us, but that because we were in person. Um, we didn't move online, but it slowed us down a bit. Um, we have run around over pretty close to 1500 people, 120 some groups, um, wow. and we have probably about 40 to 60, it depends on the day, um, trained leaders. We're right now have a course that we're offering at the University of Michigan, Um, where we are training um, 50 undergraduates to run moodlifters. And they're gonna be doing, um, invited to become um, psychology majors who are learning, who wanna be therapists maybe when they get older and they're getting clinical experience by learning how to do moodlifters. And and we, I was just asked by the clinical psychology faculty to offer, and even the chair of the psychology department to offer moodlifters as a class at the University of Michigan. Um, So we're trying to, so with this class, we are doubling the number of uh, leaders that we have. And again, if we pair with the YMCAs, um, as well as other um, institutions that we've been working with, we will very easily be able to scale, YMCAs have like 21 million members and 2,700 sites. So if that works out with the YMCAs, we'll be able to scale really rapidly to millions of people so, um, I was going to say it was up until this point, um, I've, uh, my business advisors wanted me to go much faster than I felt comfortable because again, not, a, I'm not doing this for the money. I want to make sure usually when you take a therapy from the ivory tower of academics and you put it into any outside clinic, you lose efficacy. We actually gained efficacy, which surprised us. Wow. Once people start paying, they started, um, actually doing even better. Mm-hmm. So, um, so our goal was to scale slowly and really test the heck of it heck out of it. We only started looking for venture capital and to really scale now, um, because we wanted to make sure that it really worked. Because I'm not in it for the money; I'm in it for the long run to help people.
2: Wow! Wow! What a story. Uh, just one last question, Joe, because I, I, I was really curious about the uh, on, on the scale scalabil- the, the business size scalability. I can't help myself, um, and, and I'm, it, it seems to me that if if, if you you proved it. Uh, kind of unequivocally that it's working at University of Michigan, which is a highly respected school in one of the big conferences. Would the commissioner of the Big Ten, I think Kevin, uh, Kevin Warren, I believe his name is, like, mm-hmm. would a conference just want to adopt this in the interest of their student athletes across the board? Which is, by the way, now the Big Sixteen. Um, <laughs> with the university. I would hope That's, so. that's a lot of student athletes. So if, for just that one conference, and then if you get SEC and the others, I mean, it, it seems like it's such a huge issue for these conferences who are ostensibly trying to help the member schools and all the athletes in those schools. Did you try that angle yet, or is that something maybe on the horizon?
0: That's not yet. We haven't tried that angle. Um, but I think um, I know I've been reading research on it. So, for example, the NCAA um, had a survey, and they found lots of mental illness. And they found that the, the further it got away from the athlete themselves, like the coach felt most supportive, and then the NCAA felt the least supportive for yeah. them. Right. That's what their survey said. Right. Mm-hmm. So and what, like I said, like with um, the hidden opponent, um, I think for us, for a lot of people, $250 is really cheap for 15 weeks of care. But for students who are hungry and struggling, it's a lot of money. Yeah. So I think um, I think they always should pay 10 or $15 to join Woodlifters, lifters no matter what And our data shows that they have the most efficacy when they do that. Yep. But yeah, yes, so if we could get the NCAA or the different um, collegiate or NFL. Well,
2: I was thinking of the players associations because the, the leagues might, might give you lip, in my humble opinion, might give you lip service on this. But the players associations probably would pay closer attention to this because their job is to obviously protect the interests of the athletes as best they can. And we're talking about the same age group, obviously, whether someone's 21-year-old, like Camilla, you know, formerly at Michigan or athlete at Michigan or a, a 23-year-old rookie who is in uh, the NBA right now, whatever. Uh, but I, I would imagine I, I'd like to get Joe's opinion on that. Like, do you think the PAs would be more open to this, Joe? Um, how do I say this? <laughs> well, be honest. I mean, I so, don't know. So my opinion no.
1: is that the PAs would come to mood lifters and say – Oh, this is great. Can you write us a check and be our official licensing partner? Because I believe that that's what they've done with with Headspace and some of the other ones so that there is a money making piece of this because it may not be for everyone of their in their community. However, what is in the best interest of everyone who's in the PA is to bring it more money into the pie. That would be my
2: opinion. Well, yeah. And then some of the PAs have investment arms, as we know. Yes. So that's- That's right. I think it could-, it th- could That could be an interesting job. conversation for Patty. Yeah. And, so. uh, and and in fact, the, the NFL just hired a new head of their investment group. So there there may yeah. be angles. So, plus you've got you've got certain owners in the industry yeah. that- Well- Business that I think are probably more- recept, Would be more receptive to this than others.
1: Well, speaking of business owners, I don't think- I think if you opened up the Michigan Alumni Directory, you'd probably find <laughs> <that> a few- <laughs> Uh, what's that guy's name? Ross. Uh, yeah, Steve the Ross. Miami Steve guy, Steve.
0: right? The yeah, and, state uh,
1: guy. and you look at what he's done with Rise. I mean, this really would fit mm-hmm. if, if you get to the right person, which I'm sure you've tried. And by the way,
0: I haven't. Um, have... Actually, we have been supported by the Eisenberg Family Depression Center, mm-hmm. and we've gotten a lot. We built this based on donor funding from the University yeah. of Michigan. So yeah, donors. But another advantage, if we were to able to get some of the um, more well-known athletes is I think it will really help with the stigmatization too. I know we have people talking about their mental health, but they're not talking about the solutions that might be like mood lifters. And that would be really helpful to us to have some big name people willing to you know, say, hey, try this thing. Yeah.
1: So last question, uh, and this is yes or no, simple. Have you gotten support from men's basketball and football at Michigan? Never mind. We'll move on. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, um, she, I,
0: actually, I, I was thinking, actually, I wasn't saying no. Um, Abigail Eiler has been very supportive. Um, she was the head of the Mental Health Committee, and she actually is one of the authors of our um, book, our, our manual for athletes. So she's been very supportive, and I want to call her out on that. It's awesome. so, okay. so,
2: Patty, before we wrap up, if, if, a, if a listener from an athlete, let's just pick the example of a student athlete from Columbia. is listening to this in a week. Um, and they wanted to get involved. It sounds like it's really tied to physical location, at least the way it's structured right now. Okay, so oh. explain. Just I, I, we probably should have covered this before, but explain that if you're not, if you're kind of remote from the leaders that you have so far.
0: So yeah, so no, actually, when COVID hit, um, we were already testing for a couple of reasons online groups. One is because I wanted to get to rural poor. Um, as well as urban deserts for mood lifters. because again, my goal is to get to the people who can't or won't go to traditional care. So we were already testing that. And so when COVID hit, and I could look at the group that just finished two weeks before, we actually found there was no difference between online or in-person. So when we offered um, mood lifters for athletes, actually Camille was only one of two University of Michigan students. We had students in New Zealand, Oh wow! Okay, I didn't
2: realize that. Canada, we're not
0: therapy, so we can cross state lines. It's a mental wellness peer led mental wellness program, so we already are international. Okay. Right now, I have a grad former grad student who is bringing it to South Korea, and recently, I talked to a colleague um, who does AIDS research in Kenya and in um, South Africa, and she's like, hey, Patty, you know that mood lifters thing? I have so many conversations start like that. She's like, oh. do you think that we could bring this to Kenya and to, cause they have six psychiatrists in Kenya.
2: Hmm.
0: So can we six. bring it there? Total. Six. <laughs> As in the
2: entire country. <laughs> yeah. right. wow. The U.P.
0: Yes. of Michigan, we have one child psychiatrist. So hmm. 50% of counties have no mental health care. And so we do both online and in-person.
1: Great, okay. Um, So uh, before we let you go, tell us, give us the 411 on where people can find mood lifters, how they can connect with peer groups. Um, You know, Camille was nice enough to listen. And and then chime in. Um, You know, where can we send people to to get your very valuable uh, knowledge?
0: Sure. So moodlifters.com is our website. We actually have a group for um, college athletes specifically that well, actually athletes more generally um, starting October 9th on Sunday at 7 PM. We found out that's when athletes could go so -hmm. they can go to moodlifters.com, go to find a meeting page and they can join there. If they're not athletes uh, just a general adult group, we have one starting October 18th on Tuesdays at 7 PM. If those don't work, you can put your name on a wait list. Um, so that's how they can find us.
2: Are you doing anything on social media to, to promote the business and the, and the idea and the movement? Only, only
1: on TikTok,
0: Tom. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know, Camille was mainly our social media person, but she actually went back to school. So she doesn't work for us so much anymore. Yeah. So um, like I said, we're doing an actual media campaign takes a lot of money. Yeah. So we're yeah. now starting to look for venture capital. We're looking for possible par- other kind of partnerships with people. Um, as well as we just wrote a big grant. So we're hoping to be able to do that. Well,
2: it's great. There's a, I mean, it's a very vibrant venture capital uh, world in the world of sports, as you probably have, have seen maybe or heard. Um, there seems to be new investment groups, oftentimes former athletes, by the way, successful former athletes who have access to money.
0: So you well, think if, it would make some yeah. billions of dollars. I'm not saying that because I figure like if Weight Watchers can do that, why can't we?
2: No, but Joe, I'm thinking about the conversations we had like the Aaron conversation. Mental health as an issue has come up more. Joe and I have been doing this pod for, what, seven and a half years. We've had more Mm -hmm. conversations about mental health and wellness in the last year than we had in the first six, I would say. Mm -hmm. As you you called it, Patty, epidemic. And Mm -hmm. to the extent, um, without sounding crass, you can tie profit to that through a Weight Watchers-like model uh, scaling uh, I would. I have to think that there will be investors quite interested in this uh, personally. Yeah. So I yeah. personally am
0: not motivated by money. Um, I
2: understand, but, no, but having grown but, up but before, if you go down the business yeah, yeah. path, you gotta, you know, you got you absolutely have to get, get what you need to do it right. Yeah,
0: That's exactly yeah. right. So money buys access for people. Right. Right? So for me, it's not about money. I, I as I said, I grew up poor, uh, middle, uh, lower middle class. So I never thought I'd have a nice house and a car. And my house paid off. So for me, it really is about my neighbor who committed suicide six months ago. Now yeah. I could have prevented
1: that. Yeah. Okay, we well, on. so uh, for those who've been listening, thanks again to Dr. Patricia Delden, to Camille Devere, to Sam Marks, our producer. Uh, Tom, this has been another really enlightening uh, conversation here on the CUSP Show, um, a topic, you know, which we've covered a couple times in the last couple of years, as Tom's mentioned, but uh, this is certainly an alternative and an opportunity versus just talking about the issue. So thank you, for, Patty, for helping us solve the problem, hopefully. And we're hoping we're going to drive more people to mood
2: lifters. And you know, we'll continue to check in with you and see how things are going.
0: Thank you so much again. This has been a pleasure.
2: And Yeah, Patty, really appreciate it. And best of luck. Uh, hope to talk to you again in, in the near future.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Cool. Well, once again, this has been the CUSP Show from Columbia University. I am Joe Favorito with my co-host Tom Richardson and we will see you down the road.